Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I'm your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Juneteenth uh, in the United States, uh, June 19th, uh, 2023, Monday, which uh, commemorates the 158th anniversary of the complete emancipation of African people inside the United States. Uh, When on June 19th of 1865, the Union Army, of course, arrived in Galveston, Texas, to inform the enslaved uh, of their emancipation. And, of course, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation was uh, written and issued uh, in uh, 1862 and went into effect on January the 1st of 1863. However, this was during the middle of the United States Civil War, which did not conclude until April of 1865. And uh, this uh, program, uh, of course, is going to feature our regular Pan-African Newswire report. And we'll be coming to you later on uh, with our Pan-African Newswire segment. And uh, we'll have dispatches on the African peace mission to Ukraine and Russia, an assessment of the work of seven African heads of state who traveled uh, to Ukraine and the Russian Federation just over the weekend. Somalia in the Horn of Africa is coming to grips uh, with the drawdowns of African Union transition missions Forces in Somalia will have details on that as well. There has been an international donors conference uh, to raise funds for humanitarian relief in war-torn Republic of Sudan. And the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, EGOD, is intensifying its cooperation with the African Union. In the second and third hours, uh, we look uh, in detail in the second hour at the African Leaders' Peace Mission to End the War in Ukraine, which took place uh, over the weekend. Our final segments uh, continue the commemoration of Black Music Month. June is Black Music Month, with a focus on the Orchestra Baobab of uh, the West African state of Senegal, as well as two legendary guitar players uh, from uh, the African-American community, Wes Montgomery and Detroit's own Kenny Burrell. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program, so stay tuned. Uh, we'll pay tribute uh, at the beginning here to the orchestra by Bob, and of course uh, the orchestra by Bob uh, is a band uh, that originated in 1970 in the West African state of Senegal. Uh, it got its name uh, under uh, all possible circumstances as the house band of the Ababab Club in Dakar. Many of the band's original members uh, had previously played with the star band of Dakar in the 1960s. Directed by the Tambalero and vocalist Bala Sidibe, the group featured saxophonist Issa Sissoko and Terno Kwete, uh, two singers, two guitarists, and a rhythm section with drums, congos, and a bass guitar. Since their formation, the band has predominantly played a mix of San Cubano, Wolof music, and to a lesser extent, Mande musical traditions. Following the deaths of Sissoko in 2019 and Sidibe in 2020, Turno Cuete has become the leader of the band. Orchestra Baobab became one of the uh, most prominent and well-known uh, 
African bands of the 1970s. They recorded 20 albums before their breakup in 1987, which occurred as a result of the increase in popularity of the Mbalax, a more contemporary genre of Senegalese music. In the years following their disbandment, World Circuit released several of their albums on compact discs, making the band very popular again among world music fans in the United Kingdom and throughout other parts of the European continent. This prompted their reformation uh, some 22 years ago in 2001, which was followed by the recording of a new album, Specialist in All Styles. The group continues to tour extensively and has released two more studio albums, Made in Dakar in 2007 and a tribute to Ndwega Ding, uh, which was released uh, in 2017. Let's listen uh, to uh, the music of Orchestra Baobab.
qui m'avait dit que j'étais la lumière de ta vie. C'est toi qui m'avais dit que le ciel serait toujours bleu. Mais toi, tu es parti en oubliant tout ce qu'on s'était dit. Et toi, tu es parti en disant que tout était fini. Tout le monde nous regarde maintenant. Je vois que le ciel est toujours bleu. La mer n'a pas changé de couleur. La vie n'a pas beaucoup changé. Tout le monde nous regarde maintenant. Je vois que le ciel est toujours bleu. La vie n'a pas changé de couleur. La vie n'a pas beaucoup changé.
Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, the music from the West African state of Senegal uh, from the band Orchestra Baobab. And this is uh, Black Music Month, uh, June uh, 2023. And uh, also, uh, this is Juneteenth, uh, the celebration of the emancipation of enslaved Africans in the United States in 1865. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for June 19th, uh, 2023. And we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, we want to move uh, right now into our Pan-African Newswire segment of our program. Our lead story uh, deals uh, with the seven African nations Uh, that sent a high-level peace mission to Ukraine and the Russian Federation. Um, President Putin unveiled a new model for Russia's economic development at an international economic forum held in St. Petersburg over the weekend as well. And also, uh, this just this last past uh, several days, uh, Blinken goes to China. Now, in St. Petersburg, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin hosted a mission by seven African countries to present a peace initiative for settling the Russian-Ukraine conflict. The delegation was led by South African President Cyril Ramaphosa. A day earlier, Ramaphosa, Zambian President Akende Heshalema, Union of Comoros President Azali Asumani, who is the current chairman of the African Union, Senegalese President Macky Sall and Egyptian Prime Minister Mustafa Madbouli, as well as uh, Special Presidential Envoys Laurent Siba of the Republic of Congo and uh, Ruha Kani Rugunda of Uganda, met with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky in Kiev. Commenting on the meeting results on June 17, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said that although African initiatives could prove difficult to implement, Putin displayed an interest in hearing them out. The African peace plan consists of 10 points, which were unveiled by Ramaphosa in Kiev. They include the necessity of achieving peace through talks and diplomatic means, a succession of military operations as soon as possible, a bilateral de-escalation of hostilities, respect uh, for the sovereignty of countries, and peoples in accordance uh, with the United Nations Charter, security guarantees for all countries involved, Russia and Ukraine ensuring the export of grain and fertilizer under the grain deal for African countries in need, humanitarian assistance for those suffering from the conflict, prisoner swaps and repatriation of displaced persons, including children, a process for rebuilding Ukraine, and deeper involvement for Africa in the peace process. Theodore uh, Lukyanov, editor-in-chief of the Russia and Global Affairs magazine, has doubts that the African peace plan by itself could bring any specific results. However, it is indicative of the ambition of countries on the continent to play a role in resolving global issues. The African peace initiative ideally could lead to dialogue and potentially a de-escalation, says Natalia Piskunova, associate professor at Moscow State University's Department of World Politics. The call for banning the armed conflict suggested by the African group also reflects the longstanding universal approach 
to settling conflicts under UN auspices, she said, so far, the African Peace Initiative appears to be the most well thought through and balanced as compared to those plans previously proposed, the experts think. Since the Ukrainian crisis is a logical development of worsening relations between Russia and the West, beginning back in 2011, however, any peace plan, even the most thought out, is doomed to fail, says Dmitry ovitsarov belsky a researcher at the Russian Academy of Sciences, Primakov Institute of World Economy and International Relations. The fighting will end only when Western countries, and the U.S. in particular, are disabused of the idea that their political goals can be attained by further stoking the conflict in Eastern Europe. And in other news are taking place in the Horn of Africa as the African Union force in Somalia prepares to draw down 2,000 troops at the end of June. The Somalia National Army faces its first major test when it assumes security responsibilities with significant vast territory to defend as it takes up seven forward operating bases that the departing foreign forces will hand over this month. And it started uh, just several days ago on June 15th. The seven uh, FOBs are located in territory currently defended by Uganda, Burundi, and Kenyan forces, including uh, Arobo, uh, Marka, all in Sector 1 of Atmos under Ugandan People's Defense Forces, Haril in Sector 2 under Kenyan Defense Forces, while Kandal, Haji Kali, and Murtugo are Sector 5 manned uh, by Burundian troops. The impending drawdown comes just a month after the deadly dawn attack by the Al-Shabaab organization on May 26th at a forward operating base in Buulo, Maria. And that was staffed by Ugandan troops, an incident that has triggered debate on the post-Atmos Somalia. President uh, Uweri Museveni of Uganda revealed that 54 uh, Ugandan soldiers were killed in the attack citing panic and deployment of personnel that were not fit for purpose as the reason the terrorists managed to overrun the base. But he also took issue with the Americans and Turks who have the technology, including unmanned aerial vehicles, but did not help us, Museveni said. Indeed, security and conflict experts attributed the Bula Maria attack to failure to deploy technology and intelligence to stop the attackers. But also they blame the fewer numbers available for the African Union transition mission in Somalia, ADMIS, to deploy due to the drawdown. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In other news, international donors promised almost $1.5 billion U.S. billion in addition to aid for conflict-stricken Sudan. That was reported earlier today as the United Nations warned that the African country's humanitarian crisis is worsening. Sudan has been rocked by fighting for more than two months as the military and the paramilitary rapid support forces battle for control of the strategically located and more-rich nation. Sudan's health ministry said yesterday that uh, more than 3,000 have been killed in the conflict, which has decimated the country's fragile infrastructure, and sparked ethnic violence uh, in the western Darfur region. 
The donations were pledged following a United Nations-sponsored meeting co-hosted by Egypt, Germany, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and the African Union in the Swiss city of Geneva. The scale and speed of Sudan's descent into death and destruction is unprecedented. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres said during the meeting's opening session, prior to the meeting, the United Nations Emergency Aid Program for Sudan launched after the fighting broke out on April 15th had received less than 17% of the required $3 billion, according to Secretary General Guterres. And uh, finally, in regard to uh, unity on the African continent, the African Union and the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, EGOD, have a partnership that has been ongoing for a considerable amount of time. This relationship has proved to be very beneficial in advancing the goals of peace, security, and economic development across Africa. Two organizations have cultivated a deep bond that has enabled them to work effectively towards the resolution of conflicts, the promotion of economic growth, and the integration of countries within the region and beyond. These two organizations have consistently collaborated on various fronts to achieve their shared objectives. One of the most significant areas where this partnership has been particularly helpful is in conflict resolution. The organizations have collaborated closely to resolve several conflicts that have threatened peace and stability in the region. Their combined efforts have helped bring about lasting solutions to some of the most challenging conflicts, thus promoting lasting peace and stability in the region. With that, uh, we want to conclude our Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we would like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since that time period, the Pan-African Newswire has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for June 19th, Juneteenth, uh, 2023, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
the uh, music of the impressions uh, led by Curtis Mayfield, a track uh, from uh, 1967 entitled We're a Winner. And this is Juneteenth, uh, June 19, 2023. And of course, we are here celebrating and commemorating the emancipation of African people in the United States and indeed throughout the world. This is the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, Michigan, in the United States. And uh, right now we want to move into a segment on the recently held African peace mission to Ukraine and the Russian Federation. Let's listen to this report. A delegation of African leaders visited Ukraine and Russia on an unprecedented peace mission. They want an end to the conflict because it has worsened Africa's food security and set the cost of living spiraling out of control. Well, join us as we discuss the proposals Africa put on the table, both in Ukraine and in Russia, and whether this can keep the grain and fertilizer corridors open and set the stage for the much-needed mediation to end the conflict. I'm Beatrice Marshall. Welcome to Talk Africa. There must be a guarantee for security for all countries. The sixth element is that both countries must ensure that there is movement of grain and fertilizers. What has also brought us here is that Africa is also feeling the negative impact of this war our grain prices have gone up and there's a shortage. Fertilizer prices have also shot up. So even as we are thousands of kilometers away as African countries, we are feeling the impact of this war. That was South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa in Kiev. Well, let's now bring in our panel of experts to shed light on the key issues concerning this mission. Joining me here in Nairobi, Ambassador Boaz Mbaya, a former Kenyan ambassador to the African Union and Executive Director for the Center for Policy Analysis, joining me here in Nairobi. In Ankara, Ovigwe Ekeuke, Policy Analyst at Development uh, Reimagined. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us in this discussion and a warm welcome to both of you. Ovigwe in Ankara, let me start off with you because a delegation of African leaders went to Kiev and, and uh, St. Petersburg on a peace mission. What primarily motivated the leaders to undertake the peace initiative? Ovigwe, if yes, you can I hear think, me. Uh, after a, a, a year plus, well, about 16 months in, uh, in, into. Yeah, can, you, can you hear me? Yes, go ahead, Ovigwe. Can you hear me? Yeah. So I think if we, if we look at the, the, the situation now, we are over a year into this conflict and we're not, uh, there's really no headway in terms of uh, the, the peace and most uh, destruction all, all, and that has really been problematic for everyone all, all over the world given the food prices, energy prices have gone up. So I think overall, African countries haven't felt the pinch you know, from these issues of food security, energy security and also the humanitarian disasters where we're seeing in Ukraine 
necessitates action from all countries and African countries you know, looking to play a bigger role in global affairs see this as an opportunity for them to engage with the leaders you know, of both countries to see how they, uh, you know, they can you know, find a, a solution, a peaceful solution you know, to this conflict. Ovigwe, I'm particularly interested here, though, to look at the geopolitical context of, of this mission and, you know, specifically for South Africa that is leading the delegation. Yeah, of course, uh, the, 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 there is that component as well. As, as you do know, South Africa has really abstained from the, the uh, condemnation of, of uh, Russia. Uh, at the, uh, so we had about six uh, UNG resolutions now. And the position of the South African government is that in the resolution so far, there has not been a real clear commitment mm -hmm. you know, to peace. On the other hand, uh, countries uh, like the United States are condemning South Africa's position. They're saying that South Africa is very close to Russia. South Africa is in BRICS. South Africa has hosted the Russian foreign minister multiple times since the outbreak of the war. And, uh, for, for, and also recently we saw the accusation that South Africa uh, supplied weapons to, to Russia sometime, sometime last year, even right. though the reports are very conflicting. And also, very recently, we are, see, we are hearing voices from the U.S. government talking about sanctioning South Africa because of its relationship with Russia. So, from that perspective, some have argued that this initiative is good optics for the South African government, that Cyril Maposa, the president of South Africa, is trying to use this opportunity, this avenue, to show that it is not just about South Africa's interest, but that it is, it, South Africa also sees this conflict as being problematic and wants to be a key player in resolving the conflict. So let me bring you in, Ambassador Mbaya, because the objective of the mission is to promote the importance of peace and encourage the parties to agree to a diplomacy-led uh, process of negotiations. Does Africa, though, have the leverage for this mission? Let's start from the point of view that uh, Africa comprises 54 countries and a population of about 1.4 billion. So it must have the leverage because it, in terms of international trade, Africa is suffering as a result of the sanctions imposed by the United States and uh, also in terms of uh, the fact that we can no longer simply do trade uh, clearly between Russia and the African countries. So it is important for Africa to assert itself and also to ensure that its interests are taken care of. We are working uh, from a position of uh, disadvantage right. because I think the West seems to take Africa for granted. So that is the question here. If you feel that the West uh, is still takes Africa for, for granted, can Africa though still be ignored this time around? We are a member of the international community. International peace and security refers to all countries in the world and we must play a part. We must play our part. I think Africa is trying to say that uh, the conflict in, in Ukraine is too partisan. The West is wholly behind Ukraine and against Russia. You cannot achieve a, a solution, a, a peaceful solution, unless there is dialogue. Africa is trying to promote dialogue. That is probably the best shot we can have at this particular case. That, uh, I want to rope in uh, Nzali uh, Matebula. She's a lecturer in the Department of International Relations at the University of Johannesburg. She's joining me now from uh, South Africa. And Zali, you know, the African peace effort is one of the several initiatives aimed at ending the conflict. Just how significant is this move by Africa's leaders? 
Okay, so I would like to start by saying that um, as much as we might see this as a mediation process, but then I do believe that uh, the African Peace Mission is very much significant, uh, underscored by the food insecurity that was caused by the Russia-Ukraine war. And moreover, I would like to say that um, it is a fact-finding mission that seeks to understand or to, to find if the 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 both wearing parties are actually conducive for a mediation process to start. Obigwe, um, Nzali has mentioned it there, but we do know that Africa has been hard hit by, uh, particularly by the disruption of grain and fertilizer supplies. How much of this is about trying to find a peaceful solution and how much of this is about protecting Africa's interests? Well, I, th I think it's important to mention that uh, right from the beginning of this conflict, we, you might recall th that uh, the then AU chair uh, chairperson, uh, uh, President of Senegal, uh, and also and also uh, Makisal, sorry, and also the uh, AU, AU uh, Commission chair, uh, chairman, they went on their own, on, on their own out of their own efforts on the behalf of the AU to engage with pres President Putin. And also the EU engaged engaged with uh, with uh, President Zelensky. So right from the very beginning, African countries and at least the African Union have been very concerned about the, the conflict in, in in Ukraine. They've talked about you know, the peace process, the uh, need for peace. They've stressed issues around food security, around energy energy security, and, and all of that. While some African countries may be, may be getting some uh, benefits from the war, I think overall. Uh, the economics does not really take away the fact that there is a real humanitarian you know, crisis in mm -hmm. Ukraine, and the, the risk of even the nuclear crisis is gro grows you know, uh, with all of the issues around the, the, the plants in Zaporizhia and, 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 and elsewhere. So I think there is, there, there is a sense of responsibility on the part of African countries to play a positive role uh, and not be so focused on national interests, but and also yeah, have into consideration international responsibility and African countries like um, colleagues on the, on the show here have mentioned, they see this as an opportunity for them to both, you know, assert their own, their, you know, their sovereignty, assert their initiative on world politics and global affairs while at, this, and, and while at the same time, you know, working towards real practical, you know, solutions. So uh, President Hakainde of Zambia has put, uh, has put this across because he's talked about exactly what Africa's uh, role could be uh, in this uh, uh, process. And uh, before we continue, let's listen to that comment by President Hakainde. And uh, it's important for us, as I said, that uh, we on the continent of Africa uh, contribute in a small way, not in competition with anybody, because there have been many efforts uh, like ours, there have been any, many efforts before us uh, to help bring this conflict to some end. So our coming is not in competition with any country, any group, anyone trying to bring peace and stability to this country, to the warring parties, to the continent, obviously to the globe. So. We believe it's important to make that clear, that uh, we as a group are here to complement the efforts of those before us. President Hakainde of Zambia there on Africa's efforts. Ambassador Mbaya, so how does Africa's involvement exactly differ from other you know, international efforts to broker peace in Ukraine and Russia conflict? 
the trouble is the West has not even attempted to broker peace between Russia and Ukraine. Instead, they are arming Ukraine, and they want to see Russia defeated. I, I think that is a very dangerous route to take. One, it could take the whole world into a bigger conflict if Russia feels uh, the pinch and uses weapons that everybody is afraid of. Uh, I don't think we should, uh, we should get to that level. But uh, in terms of uh, what, what difference it makes uh, by Africa's involvement, there should not be any difference. You should be moving towards uh, finding a solution, a peaceful solution to this conflict. And it can only happen if all of us put our efforts together. So we are all putting our efforts in this, as you put it there, but what role do you think African leaders believe they can play in facilitating dialogue and promoting uh, that peaceful resolution? I wish I could have uh, a straightforward answer. I don't have it. But I think we need to, f to find and explore ways in which Africa can play a part. Africa is part of the international Africa is part of the international community and we should play our part. Uh, after all, the sanctions that have been imposed on Russia are affecting Africa directly in terms of food security as well as fertilizer. So uh, there are reasons why Africa should be concerned and there are reasons why Africa now may takes this initiative. I believe the world should welcome this move rather than criticize it. Ovigo, I want to put that to you as well. How do you see this playing out though? What role do you think African leaders believe they can play in facilitating dialogue and promoting that peace between Ukraine and Russia? Well, I, I think it's, first of all, we have to listen to what, uh, the, the, what the, the points that uh, President Ramaphosa is making on behalf of the de of delegation. He's stressing de-escalation. And South Africa has been very consistent. And main, in fact, many African countries have been consistent about the, this issue. That if you look at the situation and uh, the, 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 the comments of South African government and some other governments regarding the, the resolution that have been put forward at the UN General Assembly, the emphasis on you know, cessation of hostilities and really looking for a real pragmatic in, uh, roadmap for, for, for peace has, re has really been one of the key factors that Africa has been stressing. But Africa as a whole has varied positions on, on, on the conflict in Ukraine. The views of Mali, for instance, Eritrea is very different from that of South Africa. You know, Kenya is different from the views that, uh, that, that for instance, uh, Namibia holds. So the, I think the complexity uh, of the Ukraine war is, is real. Africa embodies that complexity because in Africa you would find a country that, that, that understands the position of either Russia or, or Ukraine. So that puts Africa in a very unique position mm -hmm. because it, 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 there is no homogeneity of, or consensus, so, sort of, you know, in terms of the, the, the view, uh, the, the way the, the peace process, sorry, the way the conflict is, and then so that makes it possible for Africa to contribute that kind of understanding and that varied position into a, a workable uh, peace plan. The Ukrainians have put out their proposal. You know, uh, we saw also uh, China did put out a, pro a, 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 a proposal that should be explored, and you could see there are some similarities between that uh, proposal that the Chinese government put out and what, uh, what Africa is saying today. Issues around de-escalation, de issues around exchange of, pri of prisoners, and also uh, post-conflict recon reconstruction, and but primarily that there should be a resumption of peace talks. So I think, uh, just like President, uh, President of Zambia said, Africa is not in competition, right. it is meant to complement 
it is drawing from all the, of the lessons and all the proposals that have been put forward. And I think it's important that both Russia and Ukraine listen and try to work with their African counterparts. All right, we'll continue with this discussion on Africa's uh, leaders' peace mission to uh, Ukraine and Russia in just a moment. For now, we are going to take a short break, and when we come back, we will bring you more on the African leaders' peace mission to Ukraine and Russia. Welcome back to Talk Africa. And let's continue with our discussion. Still with me in Nairobi, Ambassador Boaz Mbaya in Ankara, Ovigwe Egeuge, and joining us from Johannesburg, Nzali Matebule. Ambassador Mbaya, to you here though, if the conflict remains unresolved, what do you see as some of the scenarios for Africa in a prolonged conflict? Well, let's put it this way. The, the, I hope the conflict does not uh, sustain for a long time because Africa will continue to suffer the amount of uh, misery that African countries are going through in terms of uh, food security are just huge. And it is very difficult to see a resolution of the conflict, particularly by Western countries, because they have already uh, taken their position. I don't, see, I, I don't see any other person or any other group of countries that can take initiative other than Africa, perhaps Asia. So it, it is important that uh, all the players in the world take, a, take a, an interest in seeing that the conflict is actually de-escalated. And if that doesn't happen, then we are going to find a situation where either Russia is beaten or Ukraine is totally destroyed. We don't want to see that. We don't want a third world war. But I think we need to, to avoid that kind of scenario very, very carefully. All right, Nzali, I want to come back to you on some uh, geopolitics here because the peace mission uh, came after South Africa's President Ramaphosa uh, recently said that South Africa itself had been under extraordinary pressure to pick sides in the conflict following accusations from the United States that Pretoria supplied weapons uh, to uh, Moscow. Uh, Ovigwe had mentioned that earlier. Has this in any way overshadowed the peace mission? Uh, so, um, one thing I can say is that since the outbreak of the war in Russia and Ukraine, um, there has been immense pressure that has been applied to any of the Russian allies that you find um, due to the current Joe Biden administration uh, that seems that wants to seem intolerant of any uh, trade allies to Russia. But then at the same time, I would say that there hasn't been evidence provided that uh, there were weapons given to Russia. So then uh, we can only work based on assumptions. But I do believe that South Africa has always taken this neutrality stance to say that they are for peace because uh, in any case, when a war breaks out, it is a risk in which we should respond immediately. And I, I've seen... The, the direction in which we are taking as a as the whole world, whereby we are so focused on um, pinning on who's on on which side, uh, taking stances instead of actually reversing mm -hmm. the the effects that have been caused by war. Because irrespective of war, uh, and in the international relations space, we should actually be mindful of all the other. Ideas 
dynamics that are attached to the war that's happening itself, or the human lives and food security that has been uh, felt due to this war. So, Ambassador Mbai, I want to get your perspective here. What do you think it is that is causing, um, you know, jitters in the United <coughs> States? Why has the West begun, you know, questioning Africa's non-aligned position despite, uh, you know, numerous confirmation of neutrality by the continent? It's simple. It's a global power politics. Uh, the United States looks at itself as a preeminent superpower in the world. They have already downgraded Russia in terms of taking order in favor of China. So they don't want to see a, 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 a country that they think should not be playing a major part to, to dictate the terms. Then, of course, United States also looks at international law and uh, against Russia, which looks at the broader, broader what, what we call the, the regional, regional uh, interest, the, 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 the immediate, immediate uh, abroad for, for them mm -hmm. in terms of the former uh, Soviet uh, Union republics. So the, there is a conflict of national interest for both the United States and also for Russia. And uh, Russia feels aggrieved that the United States is coming too close to its borders and therefore it has to fight back. So that's why there is the, the, this impasse. And I don't know how the United States is going to look at it because if a similar thing happened to Cuba or Mexico, they, they will not certainly like it. So they, it is about a matter of global international power play. All right. Uh, Obigo, I want to get your view here because President Ramaphosa recently said that Africa would never again uh, be a pawn between the East and West in, in that whole question of recalling, uh, you know, the proxy co uh, conflicts on the continent or during the Cold War era. How does this pawn perception, though, affect Africa's ability, for instance, to pursue peace on a global stage? Yes, uh, the, 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 the words by President Ramaphosa actually represents what we are seeing from all, all parts of the continent. Uh, at the last UN General Assembly, uh, President Makisal echoed the same, the same sentiment. Other leaders across the continent have, have said as such. Africa is really serious about avoiding uh, being, being a, a battleground for great power competition. And this is, if this is, this is also because of, like you said, the history on being, it was a cold war for maybe for the USSR and for the United States, but it was a hot war for Africa because there are so many proxy conflicts on the continent and that is something that, that came with huge, you know, uh, costs you know, to, to, to lives and, and, and property. But overall, I think the, the, the perception of neutrality is doubted in, uh, Africa's non-alignment or neutrality is doubted in the, in the West because they are making a case, uh, like uh, the ambassador rightly mentioned, using uh, in international law, but they are also ignoring the fact that African countries are actually saying the same thing. You know, uh, so, so many African countries at the UN General Assembly stress the fact that uh, the sovereignty of all countries should be, should be, should be re respected, and we also see uh, African countries recognizing the, the complexities that led to, to the war in, in, in the first place, you know, issues around NATO expansion, that was, that was highlighted by the Eritreans right. uh, as, as well. So I think, like I did mention, once you have a group of countries that really understand the complexity of the, of the war from all perspectives, I think it is very crucial that they are part of a peace process because that means they can contribute their perspectives you know, to a peace process. But the Cold War mentality is a major issue because some, even in Africa, we know 
some conflicts are not even given, uh, African initiatives are not given re regard. Right. Look at Libya, for instance. When the peace process of Libya was being done, Africa was sidelined. Even in Sudan today, where we have conflict, the peace process is, is being held in Jeddah, and uh, that is facilitated by the, by the Saudis and, and the Americans. Even though very recently South Africa played a key role, South Africa and Kenya played a key role to broker peace in, 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 in Tigray. So Africa has agency to solve right. these problems of global peace and security, international peace and security. It just needs to be respected as a player in its own, in, in its own right. So I want to get your final comments here, and I'll start off with you, Nzali. What do you think might happen next? So um, we'll just wait for the process as they are actually going to this fact-finding mission of whether seeing if it is conducive enough to start dialogue. But then one thing that we can expect is we can only wait until the BRICS summit uh, plays out and then we'll see what repercussions there are will be of the ICC warrant that was issued to South Africa and how um, the wearing parties will respond to that. Ovigwe, I want to get your view here. What do you think will happen next? Yes, uh, uh, just like uh, just like uh, previous speaker said, of course it will be very crucial uh, for yeah, it's very crucial to wait and see because peace is is uh, is a marathon, not a sprint. So I think this is one, one step. Several steps need to be taken for any positive outcome. It just needs momentum, you know, to be to be built. Yeah. Ambassador Mbaye, your final thoughts? Well, I want to hope that uh, this is just the beginning of talks, talks about talks, and we hope that uh, the international community can take a cue and begin to ask those two countries to talk together. There is no way we're going to solve uh, uh, th th that conflict if the West continues to arm Ukraine and Russia fails, it is threatened. So they have to be brought to, to the table. You need uh, a neutral arbiter. Africa, I think, provides that, uh, that opportunity. I hope some Asian countries also will provide that kind of uh, opportunity. But all of us, all of us, the whole international community, must work towards peace. And I just want to uh, get a final thought from you here, because uh, judging by the reception of the African leaders, what have been Ukraine's and Russia's reactions to that peace mission, very briefly? I heard what President Zelensky said yesterday. And he was basically asking them to freeze out uh, Russia. You can't resolve that conflict if you freeze out one party. And uh, I think the reception in uh, uh, St. Petersburg has been a little bit better in terms of uh, the African approach. We want to see uh, the, all, both sides embracing the, the, the initiative so that we are able to begin to talk and talk seriously in terms of resolving it. All right. Uh, thank you all very much for joining us uh, on the program. But that's all we have time for on this edition of Talk Africa. A big thank you to our panel of experts in Nairobi, Ambassador Boaz Mbaya, a former Kenyan ambassador to the African Union and executive director for the Center for Policy Analysis. Thank you for joining us. Uh, in Ankara, Ovigwe Egeuge, policy analyst at Developmentary Imagine, joining us from Johannesburg, Nzali Matebula, lecturer in the Department of International Relations at the University of Johannesburg. Remember, you can be a part of this conversation through our social media platforms on Facebook and Twitter, and you can watch these and other editions of Talk Africa on our YouTube playlist. To join us again next week for more Talk Africa. For me, Beatrice Marshall, and the team here in Nairobi, until next time, it's bye-bye.
Welcome back from uh, Nairobi, Kenya, uh, on that uh, panel discussion uh, related to the African Leaders Peace Mission to Ukraine and uh, the Russian Federation just this last uh, past weekend. And, of course, uh, President uh, Cyril Ramaphosa. President President Cyril Ramaphosa of the Republic of South Africa led the delegation of seven other six other states, and uh, he gave a briefing. Uh, we're going to listen to that briefing uh, right now. I want to extend greetings to you, President Putin, President of the Russian Federation, and indeed also extend my greetings once again to my fellow heads of state, as well as the other colleagues or heads of government and envoys of the presidents who cannot be here. Let me say that we would like to thank you for agreeing to meet us. We are a seven African nation peace initiative and we are essentially on a peace mission to try and promote peace between Russia and Ukraine in this conflict. We have some seven points or ten points that we would like to raise. Our proposal really revolves around ten elements. The first, of course, is that we want to listen. We're here to listen. As we did listen yesterday to President Zelensky, he outlined a number of issues to us, and we did tell him that we would be meeting you where we would also listen to your perspective on this war and we want to listen with respect and also with recognition of the views that you will put forward to us. But we also recognize the many other proposals that have been put forward by a number of key players in the world who have put forward peace proposals and our proposals are not in competition with the other proposals that have been put forward. The second point that we would like to raise, a key element of our broad proposal, is that we do firmly believe that this war must be settled, and it must be settled through negotiations and through diplomatic means. The war cannot go on forever. All wars have to be settled and come to an end at some stage. And we are here to communicate a very clear message that we would like this war to be ended. We say so because this war is having a negative impact 
on the African continent and indeed on many other countries around the world. As a continent, we are being negatively affected in terms of our economies. The prices of commodities have gone up, particularly grain and fertilizer, and the prices of fuel have also gone up. And this is a consequence of the war that is ongoing. And it is for this reason that we are also here, that it is in our collective interest that the war should come to an end. The third point we would like to put forward is that we would like to see a de-escalation of the conflict, the escalation of the conflict on both sides does not enhance the peace process. So we would like to see the conflict being de-escalated as we find a way to peace. The fourth point, which has also been covered in a number of other proposals, is that we recognize the sovereignty of countries in terms of the UN Charter. And yes, in terms of that Charter, we believe that all of us should work in terms of internationally recognized principles, and it is for that reason that we would like to submit that we recognize the sovereignty of countries in terms of that charter. The fifth point we would like to raise is that there needs to be a guarantee of security for all countries. This matter has been raised on all sides that all sides want some guarantees and we agree with that. The sixth point we'd like to raise is what is affecting our countries and we would like to call for the opening up of the movement of grains across the Black Sea so that whatever blockages there are should be opened up and the grains and commodities must be opened to the markets. The seventh point we'd like to put forward is that we should ensure that there is humanitarian support for those who are in need and for those who are suffering as a result of this conflict. The eighth point has also been raised by President Macky Sall with regard to the release of prisoners of war on both sides. The other issue that is related to this is the children who have been caught up in this conflict should also be returned to where they have come from, their homes. The ninth point for us is that 
as every war leads to destruction, there should be post-war reconstruction, and we should support the reconstruction that needs to take place beyond this war. The tenth point, President Putin, is that we would like to see further engagements with regard to the processes that will lead to the end of this war. We articulated this point specifically with President Zelensky, and he agreed that yes, as the African continent and as African countries that are here, we can play a role. So we would like to urge that beyond this engagement today, there should be further engagements because ending wars does tend to take a number of meetings and engagements. And as the African continent represented as seven countries who are here, we do believe that there's a contribution we can make. And we make this contribution with the greatest respect to both countries, respecting the positions that they have put forward, but also believing that there is a common position that can emerge a position that can lead to peace. A number of proposals that have been put forward we believe lay a foundation for a peace to be found and this is precisely what we would like to explore so that all of us together can contribute to bringing this war to an end. Those President Putin are the key elements of our proposal that we put forward to President Zelensky, which we also now put forward to you. And we do believe that this is the time for both parties to negotiate, to negotiate an end to this war, because this war is causing a great deal of instability and harm to various countries around the world. And we as African countries are feeling the impact of this war. So this is what we have come here to share with you. And I'd like to end by saying this is a historic mission. The African continent represented here through the seven countries has never really been involved in a mission of this sort. So we would like to say that we've taken this step, believing that, yes, we can contribute, and we'd like to thank you for giving us the time to listen to what we've got to say. But more importantly, we want to listen to you as well. So thank you very much for welcoming us. We have been consistently promoting further strengthening of traditionally friendly relations with African countries and the main regional grouping, the African Union, based on the principles of equality, mutual respect, 
and non-interference into domestic affairs. This year, our cooperation with African partners on the widest range of issues has been developing rather actively. We are preparing for a landmark event, the second Russia-Africa Summit, to be held soon here in St. Petersburg. I'm confident that at this event will set out new prosperous vectors of cooperation in political, trade and economic, scientific and technical, humanitarian and other fields. I would like to stress in particular that Russia has deep respect for the principled position of African states in favor of preventing global and regional stability and security, as well as peaceful conflict settlement and creating a just model of international relations. We support your desire to conduct independent, sovereign, and peaceful policy. We welcome the balanced attitude of our African friends with regard to the Ukraine crisis. Distinguished friends, we value your interest to settle the conflict. We immediately accepted your proposal to hold negotiations on the Ukraine issue. I know that you have specific ideas and proposals in this context. Together with President of the Republic of South Africa, we discussed it on multiple occasions and I'm grateful to him for raising these issues. I would like to stress once again we are open for constructive dialogue with all those who wish peace based on the principles of um, respect for each other's interests as well as justice. Welcome back. And uh, that was a news briefing uh, that took place in uh, St. Petersburg, uh, Russian Federation, featuring uh, President Cyril Ramaphosa of the Republic of South Africa and President Vladimir Putin of the Russian Federation. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Juneteenth. June 19th, uh, 2023, uh, we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, the special edition of our program. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week. Today, 
in the United States and internationally. Wes Montgomery um, began uh, his recording career in 1959 and, of course, uh, continued uh, for many years uh, afterwards. This is a interview uh, with Jim Rockwell, a radio broadcaster from Detroit, uh, who for many years uh, had a program called People in Jazz, and uh, this is a archived uh, edition uh, of uh, that program from 1968. Let's listen in. I think, has, I, I think so, um, uh, we don't have as many resolving cards. We'll discuss that. <laughs> Hello, I'm Jim Rockwell. Our program is People in Jazz, and today our man in jazz is Wes Montgomery. And many years ago, about 1959, well, it was indeed in 1959, a dear old friend with whom I had been associated and who owned a record company, which was Riverside, sent me a demonstration record of uh, an album he was about to release. And it was a guitarist then quite unknown. It was Wes Montgomery, who since then has emerged and has become a, a major star and it delights me to have watched this happen over the years Wes it's been nearly ten years it's been nine years but in those years to watch this this blossoming from an unknown guitarist from Indianapolis to the major star that you are and I remember so fondly the things on on Riverside West because I think in all of the years that that company existed with mm -hmm. Bill Grower's death that the company ended but I think in all of the years that Riverside existed, they never knowingly released a bad album, and that is a rare company that does this. Is. A rare company. So many companies, they'll release a thing. They, they don't really believe it's that great, but it'll sell. Do it. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not suggesting that every album they ever made was great, but if it didn't come off bad, it isn't because they didn't try. What? I mean, if it did come off bad, it isn't because they didn't try to make a good album. Everything they did was intended. They believed in what they were doing. Art for art's sake and a good album. Right. And they had such great faith in Wes Montgomery, and they had such insight in being the first to record you. Right. That happened because Cannonball Adderley heard you in Indianapolis and went back and told the Riverside people. He said, this man in Indianapolis is playing guitar till you wouldn't believe. Now, this is the way most unknown players become known, I think, as itinerant musicians traveling around the country as you do now. When you get in a local town, you hear somebody and you go back to New York and say it. When you travel around the country, Wes, and indeed now you travel all over the world, mm -hmm. do you listen to players wherever you go? Every chance I get, um, but uh, we've been working so much, it's hard to get out to hear other groups. Other I, I hear some uh, guitar players uh, now and then. Uh, upcoming guitar players, and uh, sound good. Where, where have you heard somebody? Who uh, uh, does someone come to your mind now that you've that you've heard uh, an unknown guitarist that's playing someplace unnoticed? Well, yeah, Joe Diaro from uh, Chicago. Uh, have you heard of him? No. She's <coughs> together. And um, <clears throat> but I think the most fantastic guitar player I've heard was Nelson Simon. Is in Montreal, Canada. Oscar Peterson uh, told me about him. Coltrane told me about him. Um, Horst Silver told me about him. 
also most of the major um, uh, musicians has told me about him. So I figured he must be great. And I played there um, one week, and uh, I had a chance to hear him. So I couldn't burn my guitar up because I was working. Well, so. mm -hmm. uh, that was. If you ever come here, it's over. Oh really? See now, you probably don't believe this, do you? No, because I, 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 I sort of uh, never doubted you in my life. But I, I sort of uh, felt like you know, you know, you can feel like a guy is good, sure. You yeah. know, it could uh, excite somebody. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the way I felt, but it's much more than that. Uh, he's got a new approach to the instrument, a uh, new direction. For instance, he played cards as fast as a lot of guys play lines. Well, you do this. No, 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 no. I mean, play him. I mean, he, he makes all the changes, all of them. I mean, without, uh, like, if you start off with big changes, you continue with large changes. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Never anything like that. And he's always crying. He's always telling me, oh, I'm not ready. I'm, I can't get myself together. I'm talking about, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's too much, man. How old a man is he? I don't know. He looks like he's around 31, maybe mm -hmm. 29, 30, 31, yeah. something like that. But he don't know his own talent. He don't know it. Well? So keep that in mind. Nelson Simon. Nelson Simon in right. Montreal. Montreal. The last Oscar about him when he's in town next. All right. But now here's the case in point. You have mentioned half a dozen musicians <clears throat> who have told you about this guy. Right. And this is the way unknown players frequently become known players. Right. Because other players hear them. Right. The word spreads. Now, uh... Does it wait then for a player like one of these that you've mentioned, or like yourself, mm -hmm. to hit on a record company about a, an unknown player like this? See, the reason I'm mentioning this, uh, 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 Wes, is that so frequently players will come to me or come to somebody yeah. and say, I want to play. What do yeah. I do? Yeah. Well, it's, it's not uh, quite as easy today as it used to be. Uh, uh, major recording companies a while back were looking for new talent. But they don't seem to be looking for it anymore, um, unless it comes from uh, uh, the people that's in the company. Mm -hmm. I mean, outside uh, uh, names doesn't mean anything. Like, for instance, if I went to, I'm on the A&M now, if I went to um, my company and said, well, look, it's a guy I think is great, I don't care what he's saying or what. They say, yeah, great, good, come on in, have some coffee, you know? They're an awful subject. Uh, it's just different, that's all. Mm -hmm. Just like uh, the same differences that um, uh, a lot of major uh, jazz labels have sort of started their artists to put um, one or two commercial things on an album. Mm -hmm. They used to wouldn't do that. I mean, okay. Like Riverside was one of the ones. They didn't, they didn't uh, deviate <coughs> one way or the other, but uh, just like things change, you know. Mm -hmm. So and that's one of the things that's changed. You said, for instance, that this young man is unaware of his talent. This is historically what has been said of Wes Montgomery. Everyone in life has said, Wes had no idea how infinitely talented the man is because you're a self-taught guitarist. It has also been said that in the history of the instrument, there have been three men who have done something new, who have brought a new dimension to the instrument and who have made an honest-to-goodness contribution to the, to, the, to the instrument. Django Reinhardt, Charlie Christian, and Wes Montgomery. Because before you, no one played the way you play. Mm -hmm. 
And it's been said because you didn't know. <laughs> right? Had you been a had you been a schooled guitarist, had you been taught <laughs> from the very get go to do everything according to impeccable technique, yeah. everything as it should be done, you wouldn't be the player you are, I think. Probably not. Uh probably because um <clears throat> you don't have um you don't have any instructions saying that you can't do. Um it's all in your own mind what you feel like doing. Not or what you all what you feel like to be developed. Not having been channeled in a traditional uh -huh. in a traditional track of a of a schooled guitarist, you were free to go right. Fortunately you went in a beautiful way. Fortunately. Now this right. right, but then this is not to say I'm I'm just thinking that each of these three men that we've mentioned, Django Reinhardt, yeah. Charlie Christian, and yourself, have all been self taught guitarists. Yeah, come yeah. <laughs> But this is not to say that uh, a young man aspiring to play should uh, intentionally remain self-taught right. and, and avoid all, all schooling right. because it's a rare man indeed who can be a self-taught player and have it come off and do something right. Yeah. Well, in fact, I know <coughs> quite a few fellows that are self-taught. But I guess like anything else, uh, sometimes it comes off and sometimes it don't. And um, um, any part of it is rare when it comes to making uh, any contribution at all. Yours is a family of self-taught musicians, and we'll hear some of them now. Great. Pianist in the in the group is uh, Wes's brother, Buddy Montgomery. The bassist is Wes's brother, Monk Montgomery. Uh, these are all self-taught players, and we'll hear the group. Play Wendy for us. Okay. All Great. right. Great. The group is beautiful, yeah. as always. Yeah. Watching you play, we were able with the cameras to get some tight shots on your thumb <laughs> and and the technique that has set you apart from from other guitarists. Mm -hmm. There's the story about the guitarist on the West Coast who said he spent one whole day trying to slam a car door on your thumb. You know who that was? Who was that? Jim Hall. Jim Hall. <laughs> Speaking of guitars, <laughs> Jim Hall. Right. But this technique, which is unschooled mm -hmm. and it's pure West Montgomery, this mm -hmm. technique and what you do with it, playing octaves in your solo lines, this is what set has set you apart from every other guitarist in life. And as I remember the story you telling me many years ago, this came about because. First of all, playing with your thumb rather than a pick was quieter. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it didn't, uh, like, uh, a pick seems to uh, have more of a piercing sound, and it's sharper. Mm -hmm. And, um, well, when I first started, I started with a pick, of course, everybody else was starting with a pick. And I used to use, uh, keep my, I liked it for my amplifier to be on because I found out that when you practice without an amplifier for, like, two months, and then you use amplifier, you hear more noise than you do, do, do notes. Mm -hmm. So I said, well, I'll break that habit, so I just use amplifier all the time. But while doing that, uh, I would uh, go into the night practicing. And, um, but I forgot I was disturbing neighbors. <laughs> yeah. So that was uh, very shortly brought to my attention. And uh, uh, so then I thought, um, well, I have to cut down some kind of way. But I, I had my amplifier really cut down. Mm -hmm. If I cut down much more, I might as well not use it. So then I uh, set the pick on the 
proper amplifier and, and made it much of a rounder sound softer. Mm -hmm. So I said, I use that until I get where I can play, and then I'll use a pick. But I forgot you had to develop a pick. Then you learned that you couldn't use a pick. That's right. <laughs> because you had learned to play with your thumb, That's right. and you couldn't use a pick. That's right. So then I wasn't trying to be one of the best anyway. I was just playing for my own amusement. So I go through all the trouble of developing a pick when I can play my thumb when I want to play. No. Now, every schooled guitarist in the world knows that it's impossible to play without a pick and to play that, yeah. to play as you play. Well, they claim the thumb is the slowest finger, operating finger on the hand. Yeah. I think that's why they, like classical players use their thumb, but not in the same manner. Right. So. But you get incredible speed. Uh, yeah, well, it hurts. Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> you know, in, in some kind of way. Yeah, you get incredible <laughs> speed with your thumb. But this is what has set you apart. Uh, this and, as I say, what you do with it. The octaves in your solo lines, again, this was a thing unheard until mm -hmm. West Montgomery. How'd you hit on that? Well, I was tuning up one day, and my guitar was always out of tune. Well, I thought it was because I had a bad guitar at that time. Yeah, I bought a lemon, but even the new one, they, they just don't stay in tune. So it was, it was uh, laid out like it would be in tune, maybe down at the low end, but up here, Within this range, it would be out of tune. So I used to take the first string and the third string and go like that and find out how close they were together and which one goes out. They're not tuned up. So while doing that, I, I, I ran a scale. Accidentally, I said, oh, it's not too bad. And so then I put them together and ran the scale again. And then the only thing I could uh, figure anything to it was just two notes. It's oh, not too much. Then I was going to run again and check it out, and I missed it. I thought, come on. You know, you don't do it accidentally and make it then try to do it intentionally and miss it. You know, that's yeah. turned around the wrong way, so. <laughs> I had yeah. trouble since then. After I got through, I, I played the scale. I went through there and I started, I said, well, I think I'll play a, a melody, you know, line. Come play a melody line. And every time I, uh, when I get one thing accomplished, then I couldn't do the next step. That's all. Oh, come on. You know, two notes, come on. You know. Mm -hmm. And I kept on to it. I got so I said, well, I'm, and I would play solo lines with it, which I couldn't do at that time. Mm -hmm. My hand just get cramps and I take it off the guitar and still be like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was yeah. horrible. But you did make it. Yeah, finally. You yeah. sure did make it. <laughs> Great, man. And when this was first heard, I remember the comment. I remember the people saying, good grief, listen to this. He's playing solo lines. He's playing octaves in solo lines. Mm -hmm. There was a story of a young guitarist who came to this country as a uh, an exchange student going to school in this country and in Europe he was a guitar student mm -hmm. he wasn't coming here to study guitar he was coming here to go to the university but back home he was a he was a, a guitar student mm -hmm. and when he left Europe to come here his guitar teacher in, in Europe said if you are ever in a town where West Montgomery is playing, go and watch him. Notice the key word was watch. Huh? Go and watch him, and then come back and show me how he does that. Mm -hmm. And I've had so many guitars comment along the same line. They listen, for instance, to your records. They hear what you're doing, but they can't, yeah. in their mind, hear the fingering that would accomplish this. Yeah, I, I, had, uh, I received a lot of letters with um, 
uh, piece of paper and it drawed a guitar neck to find out what finger goes on what string mm -hmm. and, and how what the process was. And at the same time, they, they used to study me once a month. Okay, all the guitar players would get together and they would wonder, each one would put his ideas of what I was doing. So when I went to Europe, we all got together, all the top guitar players. I guess about 24, all around. And uh, we used the music store basement, and we got together and just discussed guitar. It was amazing. Oh, really? It was amazing. Beautiful. But the, the letters you used to get with a chart of the guitar industry, yeah. these were from European Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because they, they like, they, they got, I forget the name of the magazine that they have in Europe, like Don Beto here. Yes. And, uh, and it would have questionnaires of different uh, guitar players and answers. And what natural uh, they received, uh, we received magazines over here, and uh, and they would uh, each one would comment about what what they think I was, what approach they think I was using, and the difference. And uh, a lot of them felt that uh, uh, they come to the conclusion out of the whole group that they don't take me as a guitar player. Oh, I'm not a guitar player to them. What are you? I use it. They they consider I like know. what their approach to the instrument. They're guitar players, yes. But I don't use it as uh, I don't I don't play it as a guitar. You use, I use it, it as a musical instrument. Yeah, as an instrument to to uh, to to project what I have in mind. Well, that's, I that's, that's an interesting analogy, and and perhaps holds right. holds some water. Right. That's right. Because I don't know anything about the instrument. <laughs> well, I mean, you know what I mean. I understand. Technically, I don't want to know anything about it really, because it's too much. That's another feel. Yeah. You find a lot of a lot of fellows. They spend more time. So well, I, I don't think I have the right pickup. I like to pick up with uh, so many screws in for the magnet, and some say, "Well, I got the wrong bridge." And you know, it's, when you get through, you still have to play it. You know. Yeah. So, your your thinking along that line of now, for instance, we're a good teacher to come along now mm -hmm. and try to touch what you are doing could destroy completely what West Montgomery is. And it reminds me so of a story of Ben Webster who went to a teacher. Now this was long after Ben Webster was an established star. Mm -hmm. In fact, it was rather late in, in, in Ben Webster's life. Mm -hmm. He went to a classical teacher to learn technique. Mm -hmm. And it turns out the teacher was an old fan of Ben Webster's. And you know, Ben has this great wide, fat, breathy yeah, tone. Right. And it sounds like there's as much breath coming around the reed as through it, right? <laughs> and this teacher was, a, was a, a fan of Ben Webster's. But when Ben came to him to study technique, and the teacher said, play something for me. And Ben played for him. And the teacher said, Mr. Webster, you do everything wrong. Uh -huh. but it's beautiful and don't you change anything he wouldn't touch him he refused he said I will not touch what you are doing and for heaven's sake don't go to anybody else well I think uh, like for instance I got it's a, I got a book coming out uh, the first of the year and it's been so many uh, fellows that's interested in knowing um, uh, what approach I take mm -hmm. so musically in a book form this book might explain a lot too because uh, there'll be a lot of fellows I won't probably won't run into but the book will probably teach them musically the approach there is a story 
of the bumblebee that has frequently been attached to West Montgomery. That according to the laws of aerodynamics, of wing surface to body weight, that it's aerodynamically impossible for the bumblebee to fly. But the bee, not knowing this, flies. <laughs> West Montgomery <laughs> is, uh, <Flammous>. is flying. <laughs> Just as unknowingly as the bumblebee. Well, <laughs> play something for us. Okay. Uh, California, California Nights. Nights. Right. California Nights. Great. Sit on, Dad. <laughs> Wes, playing is your oh, passport to the world. God bless you. It's a pleasure. Thank you for giving us this time. Pleasure. You're, you're beautiful and, and guard your thumb. <laughs> oh, guard your thumb. Believe that. Our program is People in Jazz. And our man in jazz today has been Wes Montgomery. Guitarist by appointment to the world. This is Jim Rockwell. Good night.
welcome back. And uh, that was the legendary Wes Montgomery, a jazz guitarist, composer. And, of course, uh, he was appearing here in the city of Detroit in 1968, uh, hosted uh, by jazz aficionado, um, radio broadcast and television host, Jim Rockwell. And, uh, of course, uh, we're celebrating Black Music Month uh, here at the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast on Juneteenth, uh, June uh, 19, 2023. We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back uh, with our concluding segment for this program.
the music of uh, Funkadelic and uh, with the track entitled You and Your Folks. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast on this Juneteenth, uh, 2023, June 19th. And uh, we are here broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. I want to go back and review uh, some very important music history uh, from the city of Detroit through the personage of uh, jazz guitarist Kenny Burrell. We're going to listen to some very, very important knowledge and information and research uh, related to the development of black music uh, here in the city of Detroit. given to me by Woody Shaw, Sonship, Dizzy, and Billy Higgins, dedicated to pursuing a piece of our cultural heritage through interviews with my jazz heroes. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. Welcome everybody inside the Blackwood Broadcasting Studios at an undisclosed institute of higher learning. This is the Jake Feinberg Show, and we're happy to have all of you along with us today. The urban legend of Detroit is only for those generations who were not alive during the time when that city epitomized Asphalt Canyon Blues. What we see today in the Motor City is a shell of what it was when my guest today was growing up there. A thriving car industry driven by a migration of blacks from the south after mechanized equipment replaced plantation workers. The combination of family, church, and education brought about a generation of local musicians like no other. Barry Harris, Ron Carter, Tommy Flanagan, Elvin Jones, Donald Byrd, and my guest. My guest's roots are in Detroit, but that was only the beginning of his journey. While at Wayne State, he started recording with the late, great Dizzy Gillespie. This was followed by stints with Oscar Peterson, John Coltrane, Jimmy Smith, and Kenny Durham. He is recorded as a leader on all the heavy jazz and blues labels like Chess Cadet, Blue Note, Prestige, Muse, Verve, and Concord. By the early 1970s, on top of his busy playing schedule, my guest started doing college seminars, which included the first regular course held in the U.S., chronicling the music of composer, pianist, and bandleader Duke Ellington. His unpretentious and practical style has helped galvanize knowledge and wisdom for a generation of up-and-coming musicians who did not experience the breakfast sessions at the Jockey Club in Atlantic City, Mean Old Frisco, or music before idiomatic breakdown. As Duke said, music is either good or bad. Today my guest is the leader of the Music and Ethnomusicology Department at UCLA. Perseverance, preservation, and whistling while he works. Kenny Burrell, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Hi, Jake. Uh, happy to be with you. It's nice to talk to you, man. You know, I wanted uh, my first question, you know, you grew up um, really at a time when there were no idioms. Uh, I talked to Mundell Lowe about this, and he's like, there were no terms. And, and I'm curious, as uh, it was music. And so how do you talk to your students about developing their own sound 
even though in our current analysis of music, everything must have a label. How do you try to break them out of that? Well, I just point out to them that the people who are, have have done the breaking through, the people who are, have become the giants in, in, in whatever field they're in, it can be music or it can be other things, literature, law, medicine, etc., uh, regardless of what style that you might place them in, they have an individual uniqueness. And, uh, and I tell them that everyone is different. I just remind them that, that, that everyone is different and everyone is unique in a, in a, in a, in a way. And it's, uh, it's a matter of the individual to bring out their own uniqueness. And part of my job and part of the job of our faculty here is to sense that uniqueness, hear some of it, and try to help them bring it out, point it out to them. In other words, sometimes they don't realize what they have themselves, and that's because they're young. Mm-hmm. They're just experimenting and trying different things. But having been around a while and heard a lot of things, we can tell when something is different and something is new and something is unique. So when that happens, we uh, try to point out to them that this is something that's very special to you and you should work on that and and other things like it. So I guess the bottom line is that um, regardless of what's going on in the business, what labels are floating around, et cetera, uh, it's still up to the individual to bring out the best of who they are and no one else. You know, it strikes me so interesting, you know, when I, I talked to different guys and interviewed over 300 musicians, and, and, and uh, Gary Bartz was talking to me about, you know, while they, he was developing his own sound while learning certain types of music, whereas a lot, I, I tend to think that a lot of younger kids coming into, students coming into your university and uh, music schools all over the country have learned how to play certain styles of music, but have been less focused on their own individual sound. And I think, is it more of a confidence thing? Like understanding like inside that you have your own voice, just like I'm doing with you right now. I wouldn't have been able to get up here uh, 12 years ago when I got my degree in broadcasting and interview Kenny Burrell. But, right. but, but I mean, it's about giving, it's confidence. Is that what it boils down to? Well, Confidence comes in various degrees. I mean, you, you, you learn the language by listening to other people that speak the language. In other words, you learn the technique by watching or copying other people who have the technique. But then what have you got to say yourself? And that's the point I'm, I, we try to stress to them. that um, you know, You've got the technique and you, you, you know how to do certain things. You know how to do a lot of things. Uh, but then... Uh, what is your story about? And I think part of what you're saying does have to do with confidence because the, uh, you, you have to have some confidence to have your own voice. In other words, as, as, in other words you're asking yourself, is what I have to say good enough? You know, and, and um, part of my job as a teacher is to say, yes, it is. You just have to develop it. But you, you're learning all these things that have been proven and by the giants that have gone before you, and that's been proven to be good. And now you have the technique, 
and um, you, you know we're never finished with technique. We always improve. But I mean, you have a, enough technique to start out on your on your own voyage here, and um, that takes some confidence. And that's part of my job to help them uh, understand that they are they have something, and to help them bolster their confidence. I, I uh, you know. My, my first interview was with Pat Martino, and Pat told me a story about him and Charlie Erland in high school. They were 15 years old, and they went to the jockey club in Atlantic City, uh-huh. and they saw you and Jimmy Smith, uh-huh. and Charlie Erland at the time was a, a, was a tenor saxophone player, but that night, the output from your band, and especially Jimmy's organ, uh, was just so explosive that he turned on a dime and was immediately right. he immediately started playing the Hammond organ. You know, he didn't know what he was doing. He was playing bass lines and Pat was playing melodies. But the point is, what I'm getting at is, it, you say it's your job to give to help the students find their individual voice. But Kenny, what what is concerning to me is, and maybe there's something built in Royce Hall or something. But where are the live venues that these kids can, you know, take it outside of the classroom where Bohannon and Burrell are teaching? and put it into the live music venues because honestly that's where you that's where you get your chops from right am i wrong am i right or wrong well, that was my school that was our school you mentioned detroit detroit growing up in detroit was like going to a, a jazz university <laughs> you know that's what it was about so now it's transferred and uh the thing is here not just at UCLA but other schools there's less and less jazz clubs Less and less of the what used as you as you say what used to be available to uh, musicians trying to learn their way, and it's it's um, it's happening not only in colleges but in high schools. A lot of the your experience as a student now is at the school, and so we have jam sessions here. Uh, uh, the kids create their own jam sessions, and they come on Saturdays and different time, different hours and when they're not having class and they, they jam. Okay, we used to we didn't have that opportunity when growing up. We just had to find somebody's house, go to somebody's house, which was cool, was beautiful, or go to if we were old enough to go in some club on a Monday night or something or Sunday afternoon. Uh that's not happening too much. It's happening but not as much as it used to have happen. So um yeah, the um the um the um experience has shifted from uh out in, 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 in the real world, if you will, um of the venues that are were around now in terms of this music, uh, to uh, schools. Mm-hmm. And not not exclusively, but it it certainly has changed. In other words, there's there's a lot more jazz activity going on in high schools and colleges. And and uh, and uh, what do you call it? College and high school festivals, jazz festivals, and that kind of stuff, seminars and workshops uh, than there was before. And there's a lot less activity in in the, in the various communities in terms of of jam sessions and so forth. How did you, um, you know, did you get to see John Lee Hooker live uh, in Detroit? Did you get to see the blues guys play there a lot? Yeah, the, the, I. The area that I grew up in, uh, well, it didn't matter. But the point is, uh, I there was uh, just local blues players that were that were, you know, we don't we don't they don't ha- didn't have names, so the names are are gone now. But mm-hmm. the point is, that was part of the community. 
But yeah, occasionally we would we would uh, hear somebody like John Lee Hooker come through, and um, and uh, then there was uh, uh, just a, an environment where the blues was not separated from jazz, from pop. It was all just music. And then, as you pointed out earlier, uh, the labels started to prop up. You know, mm-hmm. they 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 had to identify something to sell it, so they had to, that was part of the the reason and but it's also part of the problem they separated things and uh but it you know it is what it is and that's the kind of uh, world we live in but uh yeah i heard uh, a lot of blues growing up part of who i am you know oh i mean when i listen to early early you know almost all the kenny burrell that i have on record and and i mean it, it there's a, a real i mean there's one album called earthy that you did <laughs> i mean you can't uh-huh. get you can't get much more you know down to the core uh i just my i guess what i'm leading into is those guys really live the blues in the sense right. that they didn't i mean you could literally see them and they might be blind, or they might have no teeth, but, right. but yet they're playing and they're singing about their lives. And it's hard to, you know, if you're going to university now, you know, it's hard to really play jazz or blues if you've kind of lived in suburbia your whole... I mean, that's all I'm saying is I think that... Yeah, the, I understand. Yeah. I understand what you're saying, and, and you're right. It, it, but the point is, you're not going to you're not gonna be uh, like other people anyway. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't expect, and uh, in a in, in general sense, people don't expect a jazz artist or a blues artist, since that's what we're talking about, to sound like somebody else. So you have your own story to tell in terms of blues. And even if you grow up in suburbia, um, um, you know, it's still... If you have something to say, it's important. It can be important. Yeah, and uh, so in one sense you're right. Uh, you, you can't expect youngsters to replicate, or duplicate, or replicate the uh, the sound of John Lee Hooker mm-hmm. or others. And some some kids try. They they learn that, and then. Uh, but the point is. Uh, the blue, the real blues fans are going to say, "Well, where's your story?" Same with jazz. That's right. You know, uh, and uh, that's what it's basically all about. And um, thank God for the people, because the the business, you know, the business has a tendency to manipulate things where people get confused. But overall, I think people are smarter than we give them credit for. Well. I think you're absolutely right, and I want to play a track of music for you right now. I'm not sure the last time you heard it, but uh, this this is a, a highlight of, of mine and uh, really showcases uh, Kenny Burrell's uh, uh, blues playing. So let's take a listen. We'll come back and talk about it. Thank you. Well, that mean old Frisco and that low-down Santa Fe Whistle to blow 
Frisco from 1963. That's a long time ago. <laughs> and that was with uh, Jimmy Witherspoon uh, on vocals and Leo Wright and uh, a guy who is still doing a beautiful cat. I got a chance to interview Gildo Mahones. Oh, yeah, Gildo, yeah. Great, great, great position. Um, yeah, well, um, that is a perfect example of how these things are intertwined not really separated in terms of the blues and jazz. Exactly. Uh, and uh, as I said before, that's something that I, I grew up with, and uh, it's just a, I feel it's a natural part of who I am. It, you know, you look at the track. You were on uh, side A. Jimmy Smith, George Tucker rounded out the rhythm session. But, you know, I mean, it's not really uh, rocket science. Listen to the tunes. Mean Old Frisco, Rocks in My Bed, Bad, Bad Whiskey, Baby, 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 Sail on little girl, one scotch, one bourbon, one beer. These were these were rugged, rugged times, and you guys were coming in, calloused hands and and all, and very earthy, and just playing what you guys were living. And yet, and it, it was, uh, and it shines through. And I I love the fact that, um, you know, to be able to talk to to, to musicians who grew up when it was just music, and that's it. Yeah, I, I'm. Uh, I was glad to be part of it, and uh, it's just a a beautiful, rich heritage, uh, a beautiful, rich history that we have uh, in this country, and uh, that's also part of my mission as a teacher, not just to help the students play better and find their own voice, but also to create an audience that appreciates all of this stuff. And that's what my the goal of my show is is to I mean I'm not a musician so I'm not going to talk theory but I'm going to talk about the things we've been talking about you know the oh. you know breaking down uh the idiomatic structure of things because <clears throat> I think you know in my mind uh you know where the word jazz came from god I mean there's 900 million different ways of or p- different opinions but I just say what does it mean to contemporary America? I don't, you know, I don't want anybody to have any vision of it. I would just rather call it music. You know, right. if I'm going to, if I'm going to open a jazz club uh, in Tucson, uh, or if I'm going to be the artistic director of a jazz club in Tucson, then I'm going to call the club a love supreme. There uh, you go. Okay. Because, because that connotates 
uh, Coltrane, and that connotates a per- you're going to brand it through people. The Burrell Club, not jazz. That right. that is that that word has been perverted over time. <laughs> but you know, I guess coming off of this, you know, it was so nice to hear you playing the rhythm chops and then getting a solo. I just wanted you to talk because uh, you've had a lot of experience playing improvisational music and then playing with a vocalist. How did you learn to do both? Well, I think this, you know, experience, practice experience, and also uh, one of the things that um, I learned somewhere along the way is to be respectful of the uh, other musicians that you're performing with. And if you're accompanying a a vocalist or anybody, but particularly a vocalist as we're talking about now, um, allow them the, the room to express themselves and do things that will kind of uh, give them some buoyancy, boost, uh, inspire them in, 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 in certain various ways that will make them feel good. Uh, so in other words, be complimentary, but don't get in the way. Right. And uh, I, that's been my philosophy for, for many years, and, uh, it, and it works pretty well, you know. Did, you know, going back, you said you were, you would wind up at somebody's house in Detroit. How quickly did you uh, did did you link up with guys like uh, Barry Harris and 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 uh, and Youssef Latif? Did you guys did you know them when you were just a young boy growing up? Oh yeah, well um, that's two different extremes you just mentioned. It's interesting how you mentioned those two guys because uh, Youssef is ten years older than me and Barry is ten years younger than me. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was in high school. Uh, which is Miller High School in Detroit, which was very uh, great for me because the music teacher, uh, Mr. Louis Cabrera, knew that I was interested in writing, and so he gave me some great private lessons because he saw my enthusiasm, so much so to the extent where when I went to college and I majored in theory and composition, I didn't have to do any homework in music theory for a couple of years. <laughs> I, I was so prepared. Right. But... Prior to my being there, uh, Yusuf, uh, whose name was Bill Evans at, before that, uh, was in high, that same high school with my brother, Billy Burrell, who was my first teacher mm-hmm. on guitar. Uh, and they were, like I say, they were there 10 years earlier. And, but then, and then Barry Harris, who I, I met later because I was very active in, in, uh, around Detroit and Tommy Flanagan and I were best friends, and we worked together a lot. And the group coming up behind us, the next the next generation, was Barry Harris was in that group. Oh, I see. Okay. And I was in the group with Donald Byrd and Tommy Flanagan and Pepper Adams and that that group and Elvin. Okay. Wow. wow. So, cool. um, um, I was going to say something about, um, oh, Yusef. Yes. Well, Yusef was, um, I worked... I had I had uh, you know a really good band at that time and Yusuf was part of my group at one at one point. So was Pepper Adams and I remember uh, talking to Yusuf because I was in at Wayne State at the time and I convinced him to go and and I also encouraged him to start to play the flute and he did all of that and then the result is is history and he's now Dr. Lakeith and one of the great musicians of, but I, I always feel good that I kind of encouraged him 
to do that. And, and again, what's significant is he was even on the older student going back to school, but it paid off so much, so well for him. Well, and I mean, you, you never stop growing. I, you know, the funny thing is that <clears throat> this is a great story because we keep hearing about austerity amongst our own economics in this country now. And the truth is back during the war, World War II, if not for austerity, uh, you might have actually played the saxophone, right? I mean, it, it was, just, it, right. was, it was the, <laughs> the materials for the guitar were actually cheaper because of the fact that we were trying to, we were in war. So t- take a, how did that happen? Right. Well, I, I was, when I was, uh, you know, in like seven, eight, nine years old, um, I was in, in really loved music, and, and my, as I say, my brother Billy was playing the guitar. And in my house in in, in Detroit, uh, uh, there was music all around. My mother played a little piano, and my father liked to pick up a ukulele and stuff. But in other words, there was a lot of music in the house. And finally, we got a radio, and I think it was in the Victrola, which was the early record player. But the point was, uh, I was listening to Count Basie and Duke Ellington, and I really loved the saxophone, Herschel Evans and Coleman Hawkins. <clears throat> and plus the fact I was watching my brother play the guitar, and it didn't seem like it was such a big deal to me, you know, because I could play a few chords, and I figured, well, that's no big challenge. <laughs> so, but um, it turned out, it was like you say, during the World War II, and, and my father had passed, and so there was no no real money around, and we could not afford a uh, saxophone, so that dream had to go put aside. Um, and uh, then I uh, I said, well, I'm, I just love music, so, uh, so I just reluctantly got a guitar. Because right. <laughs> I, I wanted to do something. So I just played the guitar, started playing the guitar, and I bought my first guitar for 10 bucks at a pawn shop, and five of which was sent to me by my brother Billy, who was in the army. So that began the uh, the, the the road for me down guitar lane. And then I, at that same time, I heard Charlie Christian, who was playing the guitar like a saxophone anyway, with the amplifier and so forth. So I said the guitar is not so bad. So I stuck with it, and then I started to hear Oscar Moore, great Oscar Moore with Nat King Cole and others. And all along, the blues was there, you know, just sitting right beside me. You know, it's, it's 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 yeah. I was going to ask you. My next question was when you heard the amplified guitar of Charlie Christian. That's when you kind of were like, "Oh, actually, the guitar actually is quite an uh, an impressive oh, yeah. instrument." You know, right up right up front line there with the with the horns and the trumpets and the saxophone with the amplifier. So that then I was okay. So so when you got when you got hooked on the guitar. Um, were guys like Donald Byrd, they were still in Detroit, had they moved, or were you able to... No, we were, we were all there together. Uh, right. uh, we stayed there until, uh, well, through, I, through, when I went to college, uh, Donald was still there, and uh, uh, went into our into our early 20s, there was uh, Flanagan and uh, Donald Byrd, Elvin, I'm trying to think of the people... Paul Chambers. Oh my gosh! Uh, what a blazing, you know. blazing! So I mean, you guys would get together at somebody's. Yeah. Bar- well, we had you know a little. We had a little jazz club. We used to have jam sessions every Monday night at this theater and uh, a small art theater, you know, or actors theater, and then. But we uh, had sessions, jam sessions at at each other's homes, 
you know, houses, wherever they were, and uh, and we'd get a gig every now and then, and we'd play. But jazz was 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 cool, and and it, we would just wanted to play, and it didn't matter who was the leader. We as long as whoever got the gig was okay, <laughs> you know, and because we just wanted to play, you Absolutely. know. And so that was a, like I said earlier, that was like a school because we were learning from each other. We were buying music, we were exchanging music, we were transcribing a lot of stuff off records because we couldn't buy a lot of the music that's in print today. The students now they can buy anything and online you can get anything you can get everything online so. well i you know i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna challenge you there because I think that uh especially the stuff that we're gonna play today you can't find that online and I think that 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 um you can go here's the bottom line when there was when when l p s when when records when there was a commerce industry built around music then right. all of a sudden you're reading liner notes, you're seeing pictures, and you're listening to the music, and all of a sudden Kenny Burrell comes to life. But right. now you go onto iTunes, oh, I'm just going to get that 99-cent song because I heard it and I like it a lot. No right. idea of who the person is, <laughs> you know, the, the kind of, you know. I mean, <laughs> when you read about Kenny Burrell, you pick up on three things, love, uh, humbleness, and humanity. But you uh, you don't get that from a from a digital download. And oh so, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. You know, yeah, you're and, absolutely right. But I mean, so so while so while there's more, I've heard this from a lot of the guys. You know, there's so much more out there than ever before. But in that case, it's almost there's almost too much to choose from, yeah. and you're overwhelmed. And so, you know, it's it's important to go back. And I I, I say to myself, okay, you guys were all somewhat geniuses musically, and you were really active, but. Um, if you could, what was so exciting about transcribing and sharing? It was just the idea that it, you guys felt like you were really creating your own new sound. Is that it? Well, part of it, we, we were learning, but the thing is, we were learning more than we realized. When I was talking about you can get anything these days, I'm talking about music itself, the, 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 the notation. Right. You can get any, any, any of that is online, uh, you know, that we used to have to, that was in, in books, and but... What I'm trying to say, growing up in Detroit, there weren't even the books. We had to transcribe the the melodies and some of the solos ourselves. And in that process, you really learn and understand what's going on because you, it takes you time to absorb it and digest what you're, what you're transcribing. So you get a theory lesson as you're doing it. You get a, a lesson in uh, uh, harmony and uh, and, and uh, melody as you're doing this, and you uh, and you also understand uh, kind of what that musician was thinking about. But now, as you say, there's so much available uh, that the, 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 the it's almost like they don't know what to choose. So that's another part of, of of my mission. Our mission is to help them understand what is important in terms of the jazz repertoire. You know, and uh, so that's part of what I do in terms of guiding them to learn certain songs. I mean, there's thousands of songs that they can get immediately by just uh, pushing a few buttons. And uh, you know, the, I just I don't want to. I just wanted to say, you know, it's what what it just comes to me right now is this idea of it's the, the, there's so much music, but at the same time, some one of the most exhilarating things is to to identify the people as well because yeah, because right. you know you you are a living example of that we just RIP uh Donald Byrd we just lost him and yeah. you know but but there were guys like Donald Byrd 
who were who were leaders at Howard University who 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 would take their young students. This is how flexible it was back then. But I mean, he was able to take his students and take them on the road. Right, and, right. and and that is that's like wow. You know, I I I tend to think like you know that to me is real time learning. And I don't know if we will ever get back to that ever. But that to me is one of those historical things. I think one of the reasons why people don't know what to choose is because they don't know their history. That's just, that's a, right. you know, You're right. but we got another track of music here. Again, fashioning a unique part of Kenny Burrell's repertoire. Let's take a listen and come back. Okay. that was you whistling yeah there was for those uh, that was from an album Kenny Barella album Asphalt Canyon Suite um, and uh, and I've noticed recently wow that's a whole new uh, sound I mean where did the, where did that whistling come in how long were you doing that from when you were a boy oh everybody whistles I, I think <laughs> no but I mean I like, think to, I have, just, to have the guts I, to put it on an album is a different though well, it just seemed to be appropriate because um, one of the things that I, I don't know if you've ever been to New York. I, I grew been, up in New York. Okay, then yeah. you understand when the streets are not busy mm -hmm. and you're walking down one of those streets in New York with all the buildings on the side, if you whistle, you get a immediate sound, a special sound in New York like no other place. It has a, a, a reverberation. And that kind of was kind of what made me do that. 
because it's the Asphalt Canyon, which is dedicated to New York. <laughs> right. And, well, then, and it's very, uh, you know, the, <laughs> the album is, I was curious because it, it says asphalt. So I'm like, okay, that's clearly this, the connotation of a city. But right. then the canyon, is that just the, the echoes, the reverberation of the whistle? Or well, is, to me, it's, yeah, um, it's kind of like, that's what Manhattan itself mm-hmm. kind of represented to me. <laughs> that's, oh, that's cool, man. I, yeah, that's, I mean, that is, I'm going to have to do that because I've spent many nights, at, you know, going home at three or four in the morning, not necessarily sober, but uh, I got to go, I got to next time whistle and hear that reverberation. That's pretty cool. Well, you can hear people doing it. You can, you can be in your apartment and hear people in the street doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think that might be where I got that from. But the point is, it's a kind of an image of that city. You know, it's, it's an, when, as best you can, that was part B of Asphalt Canyon, uh, Asphalt Canyon Blues. And, um, you know, how, did that was that spontaneous, or was that something that you had thought about going into the session? I mean, were you just with? Because I mean, you did a long solo before that. Then it was whistling. Then you go back to a solo. Uh, it, I don't know. I don't remember how I came up with that. But I, I'm just guessing now that, or trying to remember rather that um, that that was the reason I wanted to put that sound in there mm-hmm. to kind of connect with the city itself and not you know not leave jazz but just kind of put a sound in there that would be more directly associated with the real life of what's going on in in, in the streets there uh i you know there, there's no listing of the of the accompanist but i wanted i noticed an album earlier i think it's called soul call i'm not exactly sure you're the leader right. on it yeah <laughs> and i wanted you to spend some time just talking about uh, a total unsung hero. He's left us now, but a a, a congero that uh, from a Latin congero who was always the first kind of first call jazz guy was Ray Barreto. And I oh, yeah. and, and I can you talk about what Ray Ray was like? You know, I was I was born in '78. I mean, Ray, I wasn't. I never saw him, but I know that he used to go to schools, and I and he was just he was a rocker. And and I wanted to ask you about him. Well, Ray was first of all, he was a great musician. And uh, one of the most flexible uh, musicians I ever met in terms of, of, of Latin percussion. And uh, somehow he got connected with uh, the jazz labels like Prestige or Savoy. I forget which one he was recording with the most. That's how I met him at probably one of those sessions. And then, you know, through the years recorded more with him, became friends with him, and then toward the end of his life, we did uh, some recordings together just it was his band. And- Welcome back. And that was uh, the legendary Kenny Burrell, uh, who was born and raised here in the city of Detroit, talked about a lot of music history uh, from the city, and this is uh, Black Music Month. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast, and that's going to end our session uh, for today. Uh, We've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. If you'd like to have access to this program, uh, the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, June uh, the, for Monday, uh, June the 19th, uh, Juneteenth. Uh, all you need to do is go uh, to our website, and that's at the 
Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And if you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go uh, to our website uh, at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, as was mentioned in the interview with uh, Kenny Burrell, uh, was none other than another Detroit legend, uh, Donald Byrd. And this is uh, his first uh, recordings uh, released in 1955, uh, recorded and produced by another uh, legend in the music business, African-American producer Tom Wilson. And this uh, is taken uh, from the album entitled Bird's Word. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week. <laughs>